You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Week Ahead podcast with Rachel and Chuck. Chuck, how are you doing this week? Hey, doing pretty good. In the office for half a day and then back out on the road. Yeah, so where were you last week? A good question. Where was I last week? I have to, <laughs> I have to remember. I, I actually, it's, you know, it's funny because you, you see those, you know, blooper videos of the politician or the the you know, the country singer standing up there saying, you know, Hey, Nashville, how you doing? And they're in like Chattanooga or something, you know, and you're like, mm-hmm. how could they do that? Like, don't they know where they're at? And they're, yeah, no, there gets to be a point where like, you don't know where you're at. Um, last <laughs> week was Bay, Canada, right? Yeah. Last week was particularly bizarre because we, we had this like fun family vacation in Wisconsin that had been planned for like forever. And then, uh, yeah, Thunder Bay early in the morning on Monday. And so I wound up driving the most obscure route from <laughs> the middle of Wisconsin to the north side of, uh, of Lake Superior. How um, long was that drive? 10 hours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had to drive my family essentially home and then <laughs> drive there. So I arrived and then I did not realize I lost an hour when you cross into Canada there, oh, um, no. Eastern time zone for some reason, uh, up there. And so, um, yeah, so I arrived at my hotel like two thirty in the morning and we had to get started at eight. Um, Ugh. so it was a short night and then we had a uh, two days in Thunder Bay, which were great. Uh, actually the it, Thunder Bay went really well. Every time I've been to, um, to Canada recently, it's gone just extremely well. The, the, the conversation there is great. And, uh, you know, the questions people are asking are are fantastic. And this, they had a, a series of different speaking engagements I did and then kind of topped off with a a big thing on um, Tuesday night, uh, a big fundraiser for the United way. And they had the the place is just packed. It was really well run and uh, a lot of fun. And I, I feel like we made a lot of, a lot of difference. Uh, there are a lot of people who, you know, heard the message for the first time and were really enthused. Uh, I drove back on two uh, after the thing on Tuesday night and got home about three in the morning and then, oh, uh, wow. yeah. And then got up and, and helped the kids get to school and then uh, got on a, well, we did the webcast, the, the, <laughs> yes. the broadcast. And then, yeah, we finished at one and at one fifteen, I was on a shuttle uh, headed to Minneapolis, St. Paul to get on an airplane and fly to Seattle and then up to Bellingham, Washington. Uh, we had um, a full day on Thursday in Bellingham, which was, again, really good. Uh, we should talk just like briefly about my tooth. Cause it was one of the, like the memorable things uh, about that trip, but yes, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, besides, uh, having to super glue my teeth together, uh, to make it through the did day, you, like, Google um, that? no, did you just do it. Yeah, I just did it. <laughs> that seems bad. Yeah. Well, sometimes you got to take one for the team, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, um, I'm glad you're okay now. Yeah. When I was a, okay, people are wondering, like, what the heck's he talking about? Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I was in perfect health. I still am, like, very extremely healthy. Uh, the only thing that I had was I kept losing teeth. And not like they would fall out or anything, and not like I had cavities or anything. I just, I would get in these weird accidents. <laughs> like, I'd run into a goalpost or... I'd be playing basketball and someone would like box me out and I'd land on my mouth and knock out two teeth. So basically like all my front teeth are chipped. Uh, they were like chipped in half. And then uh, over time they would, you know, grind them down and put uh, crowns on them. So basically my whole front teeth are fake, uh, not real. Um, the problem is like one of them, the, the root that it's on is weak, like the rest of the tooth and the root got basically like fell apart and my tooth fell has been really loose. Uh, it hurt for a long time. Like back when I did the Edina thing at the end of September was probably when it first started. Yeah, it was when it first started and it really hurt, but, uh, then it kind of busted up and, and was just like kind of hanging there. And I was being real delicate with it because I didn't want, you know, I, I've got an appointment. It's like a five month process to fix this thing, but, uh, we were going to try to make it to that appointment without having to do anything. And then when I was in Washington, it finally, like I was brushing my teeth and my tooth just fell out. Oh. And it's not like it's a front tooth. So it's like very jack-o'-lantern ish. I mean, it's not like mm-hmm. it's a subtle, it's not like it's a subtle, like one of your side teeth or something. It's like, you can't talk. You can't, you know, I, I would talk, but it, the, 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 it was just like that. And mm-hmm. Did it so hurt? I, no, not really. No. Uh. Uh-uh. Uh. Okay. Um, so they, I, I, I basically like shoved it back in. And it held for the first presentation, but I had a microphone so I could talk kind of soft. Were um, you afraid it was just going to fall out? Yeah. Like it's terrified. Yeah. There was a couple of times when it was, I could feel it sliding down and I would turn around and like shove it back up in my mouth. Oh. Uh, and then they wanted me to go do a, a walking tour out on the street. And there's no way to do that without projecting. And, uh, basically it, my tooth just came like flying out at one point and like, that's it. I'm done. And, you know, they had a dinner. Everybody schedules these dinners and lunches and stuff. And I am. And you weren't going to be able to eat any of the food. No, no. Not to mention you probably didn't want to go at all. In in the last uh, three weeks since I've been having, dealing with this, I've lost five pounds. (laughs) Because you just can't, you can't eat. Like it's, you know, you Mm -hmm. imagine not being able to use your front teeth. Well, now, um. Uh, yeah, I kind of like, what do I do? I've got two more talks to give. I can't give it without a front tooth. Uh, so I went to the, uh, the, I went to like a Walgreens and bought super glue and literally like super glued one, you know, I filled my mouth full of a uh, Kleenex to kind of dry everything out and then, you know, dried off the tooth and then like stuck it to the other one. It actually worked really well. What did your dentist say when they found out you did that? Um, they're, they're like, yeah, you know, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, they're like, you know, you do what you got to do. Um, yeah. So, you know, it it got me through the rest of that day for strong towns. Yeah. (laughs) Um, got me through that day and then got me through, got me home. I, 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 after we finished up in Bellingham, I drove to back to Seattle and got on a midnight flight and flew home. That's why I took the shuttle to the airport instead of drove because I knew there'd be no 
no way I could stay awake uh, during a drive after that week. So I got in the shuttle and came home. And then, uh, yeah, when I got home, I had a dentist appointment like two hours later. And they, they gave me this, um, it's, it's basically like a mouth guard. It's really annoying. Uh, it's like a retainer mouth guard that basically goes over top of all my teeth and holds the one tooth in. Um, but I can't eat with it. And so mm-hmm. again, it's just, it's, it's such a pain in two weeks. They're going to put an anchor in. They're going to drill like a sheetrock screw into my uh, jaw. And then I've got four months to have like the bone heal around it. And then uh, they're going to be able to fit me for a crown on top. So. That is quite a saga. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of knew, I mean, I, I, I remember back when I was in my early twenties and they did what they did that has lasted till now. They said, you know, this will last you a while, but you're going to have to get something done in the future. And, uh, I just kind of forgot about it cause it had, you know, it'd been 20 years that it had worked what they did. Um, but yeah, no more. And, uh, yeah, the bad thing is that, um, I have like four of these that this could potentially happen to. So, yeah. And so there's this question, you know, do you do, uh, you know, cause the other one they said has got like some scar tissue and it shows like it's, it's really weak too. Do you do that one at the same time? And there's a part of me that's like, yeah, of course I would do at the same time. But then, you know, it's like 6,000 bucks to go oh through this. Gosh. Yeah. And my oldest is getting braces, which we were already like, how are we going to pay for these braces? And mm. now it's basically like, this is more than braces. And it's like, oh, yuck. But yeah. Uh, and, and insurance covers Thanks. zero of it. So, you know, that's the whole oh, deal. Yeah. That's absurd. Wow. Yeah. You know, but what do you do? I mean. I, like I said, I'm not going to complain because this is like the worst health problem that I've had in my life, which is, you know, compared to other people who actually struggle with real things. Um, this one's just an annoyance more than anything else. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's when you make your, you know, when a big part of what you do for, for a job is talk <laughs> to, uh, to, you know, impair your ability to talk for five months is kind of a drag. So this week, uh, we have maybe an even busier travel schedule. Yeah. Uh, Texas tour. There's three weeks, three weeks in a row here. And then, you know, things will get a little bit easier, but yeah, it's, um, it's been a little stressful at home, uh, cause I've been gone so much. This is the one like rough time of year, but yeah, yeah. I, this is gonna, a, a good way to finish up this stretch. Cause I love Austin. Um, we have so many great people in Austin, uh, doing great stuff and it's, it's fun to be there and to chat with them. So I, I'm flying out tomorrow, like brutally early, uh, Mm. tomorrow I'm going to be in San Marcos, uh, which is a a place I did a curbside chat before we're doing kind of a bigger follow-up thing, uh, over the course of the day, Tuesday. And they were also in the strongest town contest, if I'm remembering correctly. They were. Yeah. Rightfully so. I mean, great. It's like a cool place. place. Yeah. So San Marcos and then Austin. Austin on Wednesday. And okay. we've got stuff planned uh, all day on Wednesday, including a, a, a meetup. I want to say at five o'clock or so. Check the website. It's all on there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm driving Fort to Arlington, Earth. which oh, is Arlington. Okay. yeah, not exactly close, but I'll drive up to Arlington and uh, part of a, a conference in Arlington on Thursday. And, uh, 
spend the night at my aunt's on Thursday and then uh, hang out with the Redunity people Friday morning and head home. And I think you're in Fort Worth for part of that too. Yeah, yeah. that might be on the Thursday thing. Okay. Yeah. Busy, busy schedule. Yeah. Do you, can I tell you like a ridiculous travel story? Yep. So Delta, I really like, like I would highly recommend Delta. I fly Delta as often as I can. Are you Uh, like a platinum sky miles? I I am platinum. I may, this may be the first year when I become a Delta diamond. Ooh, Um, does that mean you get to go in the special lounge? Yeah. Yeah. Basically it, there's two like big things. I mean, they send you like drink coupons and stuff, but like, I don't care. Yeah. Uh, the, the I'll thing that cares, is they right? let you board early, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I, to me, if I'm like going to be on a long flight, I want to be the last one to board. But if you've got carry on luggage and stuff, it's nice to be able to board early. The second thing is they upgrade you for free often. So I fly a lot in the business class, um, which is not first class with like the big seats, but it's the regular regular seat, but with like four extra inches. Oh, nice. Well, that four extra inches is the difference between being able to respond to emails or just sit there, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you know, I'm six feet tall, so it's really hard to type or anything in a regular coach seat. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so they they upgrade you for free to that, which is really nice, and it means I can get a lot done when I'm flying. So I'm scheduled to go to Austin uh, on Delta, and uh, I was going to go Tuesday night. Well, then San Marcos called, and San Marcos wanted us to come uh, on a, a day early, mm-hmm. which Michelle was able to work out, and, and so I'm doing that. But the only way it would work is if I flew on American Airlines, a different flight out there. And San Marco said, you know, yeah, we'll pay for the other flight. And, you know, it was all good. Like everything was good. Mm-hmm. So I got the wise idea that I would call Delta and try to get my, my, my trip down there, like refunded. Like, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm not flying round trip now. I'm only flying one direction. Would you just like, you know, cancel that one flight and then rebate me? you know, rebate strong towns, you know, for this cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, guess what? If you, okay. I found this out. Did not know this. If you miss one leg of the trip, oh yeah, they cancel the whole trip. Oh, so I told them this and they're like, well, we'll have to, you'll have a change fee. And I'm like, well, I, I don't want a change fee. And they're I like, want well, money you, back. <laughs> yeah, I want money back. And they're like, well, it's a $200 change fee. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what if I just don't show up for the flight? I mean, you're not going to charge me to it. And they're like, if you don't show up for the first flight, you get the second flight canceled. That's, yeah, that's a weird policy. Well, I'm lucky I called because my plan was to just like not make the first flight and then fly back. And they would have, I would have not had that a seat. Big trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's what they wanted to do. They wanted it to cancel the flight. They were going to charge me an extra like 500 bucks. Uh, they said, well, we'll waive the change fee, but the ticket price difference is, you know, like what? $500. And I'm like, how can that possibly be? I already I, have the ticket. <laughs> I already had the ticket. Right. Oh, gosh. Right. So, um, so they, they canceled, they, they canceled me out and they put me on a different flight uh, and they rebated me $18 amid oh. all that. So now instead of leaving, you have to pay $500, right? Right. Yeah. But I'm, I'm on like a, instead of, I was going to fly out of Dallas at like four or five and now I have to fly out at noon, 
which is fine, but it cut short my day with, uh, with Kevin and Kristen and all the people at Verdunity. Yeah. Uh, well, I also have an event next week. I, I know, know you do you about that. Okay. Talk about it. I'm excited. Well, I'm excited. I'm intrigued. Um, this is okay. So it's called the empty storefronts conference and it's in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and we knew Chuck was busy when they asked us to speak at this. So I was like, well, I live close to Madison. I would be interested to meet some people at this conference. So yeah, I'll do it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a conference that's about, um, filling empty storefronts and it looks like it's going to take place in several empty storefronts. So that's kind of a cool feature nice. and it's just like a one day thing. So I'll be talking, my, t- my talk is called small bets to build strong towns. So nice. yeah, I'm, I used uh, a lot of curbside chat in it, but then I incorporated some other stuff. So I'm, yeah, I'm I can't wait to hear how it goes. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'll be honest, but I, I don't speak often like you do, but it'll be fine. Uh, don't be nervous. You'll, you'll do very well and, uh, people will be impressed and let me just, I'll just say this for everybody out there who is, you know, giving a presentation. The reality is, is that the bar for a good presentation is so ridiculously low that <laughs> if you go in with any type of, uh, you know, coherent, uh, story with a little bit of passion, uh, you know, to what you're, what you're saying, you will do great. Well, yeah. Hope so. Yeah. Thanks. And you in particular will do really well. I'm very confident. So yeah, feel good. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let me take a minute to welcome our newest strong towns members. We had several this week, um, due to a couple incentives we recently, uh, opened up. Let's see. So we'd like to welcome Jeffrey green, Bobby Peppy. Linda Ross, Whitney Stower, Michael Lilliquist, Anthony Hamilton, Laura Mins, Marshall Hines, Colum Red Villas, John Drew, Adam Williams, and Danielle McCann. Thank you guys so much for becoming members of Strong Towns, and welcome. Yeah, thank you. You, you forgot one uh, new member, though. Who? Thomas Schumann Erfurt. Oh, well, yes. I was gonna definitely going to announce that, yes. <laughs> Exciting news that our, our colleague Michelle just had her new baby was born this weekend, and he's adorable. Already yeah. saw the photos. But he is adorable. I guess that means uh, and, we don't get to talk to Michelle for a little while. I know. Yeah, Michelle's gonna be taking uh, taking some time off, and and good for her. I I mean, obviously, congratulations. And I mean, Edward, yeah, her husband's so a really good friend of mine too. And and yeah, very happy for them to have their second boy. And, uh, this one seems like a, like a keeper. He's a little over eight pounds and, you know, uh, all the normal, normal weight and look good. And mom is smiling and dad is smiling and, and older brother is smiling. So they all look like they're, they're doing well. Uh, Chuck, tell me about the essay that you published this morning. Um, continuing your Portland housing series. Um, this one is called distorting housing prices. Yeah, I, I had, I struggled all weekend to decide whether to talk about the, the psychological aspect of how housing prices are sticky and, and how a few people drive a a market. And I decided instead to, to save that part and to talk about just the, the financial mechanism that drives up housing prices in a place like Portland. And, and, and actually, uh, this first kind of struck me a, a few years ago when I was in Austin and was watching what was going on. I, I was walking through the Austin neighborhoods and people were telling me how expensive the housing was. And it is, it's ridiculously expensive. 
And we were looking around and, you know, I, I, I saw a, a tower that had to be, you know, 20 stories tall, just this massive building next to a vacant lot, next to a, 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 a place that was one story tall. And it just occurred to me, like, what, what's the value of this lot here? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not based on the value of that one story building. In other words, if you went to people and said, well, you can build a one story building like this one here, uh, the price would be really, really low because, you know, that's a pretty modest building. But if you said, you know, you can build a 20 story tower on this lot, well, then all of a sudden, uh, the land values become really, really huge. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing about that is that that high value kind of spreads. Um, in a market like that, there's actually very few transactions going on in a year at that price. And, you know, with the intention to build the 20 the story tower, yet that's the essentially price point that makes the market. And so what you see is that not only does that lot, that vacant lot between the two buildings become really expensive, but now the single story building becomes really expensive too, because the market will assume that it's a tear off in the future, a scrape off, you know, something yeah. where the, the value's all now in the land. So Portland and, and Austin uh, and, you know, various cities in Northern California have, have really made their housing unaffordable because of how they have done their transportation infrastructure, where they, you know, the, the build it and they will come kind of investments and then how they have, uh, you know, distorted things with, the uh, the large leaps in your uh, in, in the increment of development. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're able to go from single family home to six story, eight story, uh, you know, apartment or condo complex. That that is a massive distortion of land values, and it ripples through the entire system. I think another important thing that kind of side effect that you pointed out here, not just that um, it makes housing unaffordable, but it also means like this vacant lot might stay vacant for a long time. And this house might, you know, be uh, not well taken care of because the costs are so high and like the incentives are low. So that's definitely a downside, I think. As this well. was a bizarre thing because, you know, I, I've seen it, here in my hometown, we have a little bit of this effect um, and it happens along shoreline. Uh, shoreline properties are in, especially on the premier lakes, there's a finite amount. And, you know, whenever you have a finite amount of something and high demand for it, prices go way up. And so what you would see is you would see like the old cabins, uh, people wouldn't fix them up, you know, what, cause why, why would you, why would you put money into a, a cabin the land is worth a million dollars. The cabin's worth 50,000. You know, you, 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 you put a ton of money into fixing up the cabin and now it's worth 200,000. Well, it doesn't change the overall value. The value is still a million dollars because you're just going to tear off the cabin regardless. Yeah. And so you'd have this weird juxtaposition where you would have these five, six million dollar, you know, Lake McMansions next to these rundown dilapidated cabins. Uh, you know, next to another McMansion. And, you know, the, the, the one would be not cared for. It would be not looked after because it was essentially the people were just holding on, waiting to sell at this high price. When I'm traveling around Portland, when I'm traveling around Austin, I see the same thing. I, I see people who are living in homes that are 500, 600, 700,000 dollars. 
and they look like houses that in my, you know, in my hometown you could get for $50,000 or $60,000. That they're, they're very run down and they don't look at all like a three quarters of a million dollar home. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because any money that you would put into it would just be money you'd throw away because the value is not in these structures. It's not in the improvements to the property. It's, it's not like you're going to list the home for sale and say, well, it's got granite countertops and it's got, you know, jacuzzi tub and it's got, no, it's got land that can be developed very intensely. And so it drives up the price. One thing I've been wondering as I've read this and the other Portland piece, and I think a couple of other people have asked the same question is, I mean, is Portland an anomaly or is this an example that's true in many other cities? I, I, I've gotten this feeling through, uh, through I, I mentioned Austin, but also through much of California. Yeah. Um, you see it a little bit in Seattle, although it's less pronounced. Um, I think Portland is a bit of, I mean, Portland's a bit of an anomaly in many ways anyway, uh, because of, you know, the, the way they have chosen to develop and it's very different than, than what you find in a, a lot of North America. The urban growth boundary creates a unique situation. The fact that they've invested so heavily in rail and, uh, everything that comes about with that, uh, as opposed to highways, uh, then, you know, that, that has a, that has a definite changing effect. But you can go to, and there might be people who argue with me about this. I, I, I don't know the New York market as well as maybe I should. But to me, the, the New York market is a lot saner. It, it, the, the prices are crazy, I, but, but it makes a lot more sense to me because the way things have grown and developed, uh, you don't have these massive, massive gaps where you'll have very disproportionate uses in intensity next to each other. Mm-hmm. That is really something that I've only experienced in places like Austin and then places like the West Coast, uh, where the development pattern has been a lot sketchier, a lot more... Um, let's just say that things weren't as mature when we reached this you know, phase where we started to build in huge increments. And so you see this, you know, huge increment of building and it's, uh, right next to stuff that is very, is, is at the first increment. And that juxtaposition to me is what uh, kind of illuminated this effect for me. And, and I think, yeah, it's, it's more pronounced in these places than anywhere else. I'm glad you included a note at the end where you said, uh, if you're new to strong towns, don't start thinking I'm anti-transit. Because I, uh, some, somebody commented on a piece that I wrote a couple weeks ago. I can't even remember what it was. As far as I know, it wasn't particularly anti-transit. But a couple people jumped in and were like, "Why is Strong Town so anti-transit? Like, yeah. I just can't understand this." Like, I saw one of those comments, and someone said, "Like, this is why I, I, you know, get frustrated with Strong Towns because you guys yeah. just don't get transit." Certainly, I love transit. I use it frequently. But we have to go back to the Strong Towns principles of financial solvency as a prerequisite for long-term prosperity, and a transportation system is a means for creating prosperity, not an end unto itself. And certainly we're not against transit projects. There's some great ones that have been very successful in plenty of cities. But we have to look at transit with the same skepticism that we look at road projects that are you know, funded in the billions. The interesting thing about transit, and I try to explain this at the end of the piece, is that you know, we are pretty consistently against build it and they will come anything. 
-hmm. whether that is, you know, a sports stadium or an event center or a highway interchange or a transit line. A huge subdivision. Yeah. I mean, the the whole idea of build it and they will come is is a modern concept. Um, As I say in the curbside chat, great movie plot, terrible economic development strategy. Yeah. And it, it really creates... Uh, these huge distortions in the market where, you know, you're getting, you're not getting the feedback that you should. And I know people are enamored with the transit oriented development approach. You know, it seems great in theory. You go build a transit line, you build high density development around it. It's, it's everything that planners and engineers and, you know, all the theoretical people who sit around and play Sim City think that a city should do. Um, but you know from a from a market mechanism it's it is only in a crazy affluent place like ours uh where you have this combination of free market or you know uh, 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 i use free in air quotes you know some type of market system that you know gives benefits to a certain number of people uh but doesn't require much of them and these massive government subsidies that you get this just bizarre development pattern. I don't know if you also caught, I made the point in the article that uh, I don't think anybody around any of these transit stops in Portland was ever assessed. Um, we generally don't assess value increases on major transportation projects. And let me explain that for people. Um, we uh, often will go in and, and say we pave your street in front of your house we will do a direct, what's called a direct assessment, where we actually charge the person who benefits from that the cost of it. And you can mm-hmm. put it on their taxes. And it's, it's one of these forms of raising revenue that falls outside of regular taxation. The catch is that you have to improve the property value by the amount you assess. Otherwise, it's a takings uh, you know, which you, you can't do. You can only tax, uh, or assess. The thing is we go out and build, like, let's say you go out and put in a rail stop and, you know, you make the properties around that rail stop worth millions of dollars now when they were worth hundreds of thousands before we never go in and say, all right, uh, your property used to be worth 200,000. Now it's worth two and a half million. Uh, you're going to pay us $2.3 million for that increase that we just created a, a value for you. We, yeah. we never do that. It's like un-American, right? And so what you do is you wind up making like a few land speculators really rich. Um, if you say like, well, okay, what's an alternative? You go to a, a place like Japan uh, where, you know, they're going to put in a rail stop. What do they do? They go acquire all the land around it at pre-development prices. Then they put in the rail stop. Then they sell off the land at post-development prices to, oh, to developers. Interesting. Yeah. And then pocket the increment to pay for the rail stop. Right. Huh. That's a very interesting model. Yeah. Well, that, that's how railroads built the entire rail system in the North America. You know, okay. they, the, the railroad, you uh, you know, Northern Pacific, uh, came here. They, when they built Brainerd, they, uh, you know, acquired the land. The government gave them the, the land in many ways, but they would, they would acquire the land 
at pre, you know, pre-train prices. They would put the train in through the town and put a stop here, and then they would plat it up and sell it to speculators. And they would use that money, you know, post-development, that increase, to actually pay for the construction of the rail line. Mm-hmm. This is a, you know, can't do that in America either, right? If you're the government going to go out and put in a rail stop and acquire all the land within a mile of it. Yeah, eminent domain. Yeah, people would say, you know, you can't do that. That's socialism. You know, you you can't. So we had this bizarre system where whether we're building highways or whether we're building major transit projects, you're essentially bestowing communal money on, you know, like, a finite small number of individuals, uh, largely, you know, developers who have been able to acquire the land and, and sit on it, you know, speculators, you're making them very, very rich on the public dime. And it, 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 it creates these huge underlying financial distortions in land values that make housing unaffordable, you know, uh, create these big housing bubbles, um, and it, it doesn't make any sense, you know, so th- this is why for me, build it and they will come, particularly in an American context, it's just a really, really bad situation. Right. I think we need to go also back to one of our principles. I think we've talked about this in terms of public transit, that public transit should be put in to connect two productive places, like two places that are already thriving and need to be connected versus like this random place over here that we think people should be going to and living at. So we're going to build like build and they will come. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of that too, in my mind is I think we need to break ourselves of the, you know, 1960s, 70s commuter mindset. You know, we're, we're building this Southwest light rail corridor here in Minneapolis, St. Paul and uh, Minneapolis South of, of Minneapolis. And it essentially is a 1970s commuter type of mentality uh, that just won't go away. Um, you know, the like project people in from the suburbs to the downtown. Yes. And, and when you look at the ridership numbers, it's obscene because and I'll, I'll say this. I don't know the exact numbers and it's probably not as bad as I'm going to say it. But it's like 90 percent of the cost of this line is outside of the city of Minneapolis and 90% of the ridership is within Minneapolis. So you're, you're spending all of this money to basically do build it and they will come, you know, south of, of Minneapolis, way out to these rich suburbs. And you're getting a bunch of park and rides and very low ridership. And then once you hit Minneapolis, where you actually need transit, where it's actually like really functional and it would pay off and it would be a great investment, you kind of starve the place of really good transit, except for you put one like really expensive line in and then tons of people ride it within the city. It's it it, to me is like a backward way to do transit. And it's, it's based on this notion that living patterns in North America should be urban centers surrounded by commuters and people who commute in and that somehow our economy is better when we focus on people commuting, whether it's by rail or by car. And I, I just, I find that to be a fundamentally flawed assumption. So we should wrap up pretty soon, but I'm curious to hear if you've been doing any good reading or listening to podcasts lately. Oh, you know what? I've been doing like a bizarre amount of reading and, uh, cause I've been, you know, I've been traveling so much. Um, mm-hmm. I've really been listening. I, I've had a lot of time behind the wheel. Uh, I, I you know, 10 hours, <laughs> you get through a lot of books. 
Um, right now, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to an audiobook called Spam Nation that is about cybercrime. And it is just ridiculously fascinating. Uh, I went through a bunch of uh, Jack Reacher books because oh, yeah. the uh, the new Jack Reacher movie is coming out. Um, it came out last week. I haven't got to go to it yet, but I really want to. I, I, I read a, a couple of weeks ago this book called The Underground Railroad by uh, by someone named Colson Whitehead. Oh, I love him. Do you? Yeah. Okay. This book was great. Um, Is it fiction? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yes. Um, It's funny because I'm not like an Oprah's book club member person. (laughs) You know, like generally if it's in the Oprah's book club, my assumption is it's probably well written. It's probably a pretty good book, but it's probably not for me. Fluffy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This one I saw and I I, I saw it like recommended by a couple people that I I respected and then uh, saw that was in the Oprah's book club. And I thought, well... It'll be a good read uh, regardless. So um, I got it. And I got to say, it was, it was really, really good. It was, um, it was fascinating. Uh, I am reading uh, on my Kindle um, that book. Uh, I, I think I shared it with you a, a while back. Um, it was a, the woman from Berkeley who went to Louisiana and like embedded herself for five years. You know, she kept going back and she basically wanted to learn why Tea Party people think the way they do. Oh, okay. And I can't remember the name of the book. I- I'll look it up here. It, okay. it, is, it is utterly fascinating because one of the things she had to do was like turn off her filter is how she said it, you know. Um, because she's, you know, I have a, she said, I have a certain filter of viewing the world. I have a certain worldview. I wanted to understand their worldview. And to do that, I had to take off mine. So I'm, you know, uh, understand, uh, you know, trying to empathize. So the book is called strangers in their own land, anger and mourning on the American right. And, uh, the author is, let me see. Um, I'm not going to get the author here. Anyway, fascinating, fascinating, fascinating book. And she's, I'm, I'm about th- two thirds of the way through it. And she's really getting into it, It's, It's one of these things. Did you watch Saturday Night Live at all this weekend? Uh, I didn't watch the most recent one, no. Okay. There's a skit and a brilliant, brilliant skit. And I, I think people, I don't know if people thought it was brilliant for the same reasons I did. Uh, there's, they have black jeopardy is one of the recurring skits that they do. And black jeopardy is hilarious. Black jeopardy. If you've never seen it is two African-American contestants and one white contestant. And basically the, the, the comedy of it is showing how like the, the white person, whoever it is, is kind of clueless of black culture in, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. This one, Tom Hanks was the white contestant. And he had on a Make America Great Again cap and, you know, kind of talk like a good old Southern boy. And, um, you know, it, it was, it, it was, you looked at it and it was like, we know where this is going, right? Yeah. But you didn't, you didn't. Because what happened was you saw as Tom Hanks's character, as his contestant on Jeopardy, would answer these questions that like only 
people who had grown up in a, you know, hard, difficult African-American life, you know, downtrodden, what have you would get, he totally got like, he'd answer the questions, right. And you get this sense of like, through the whole thing, like, wow, poor white people and poor black people have a lot in common. Mm -hmm. And you know, this book, strangers in our own land, you kind of get that sense too. Like, wow, people who are poor, uh, have very similar experiences in life. And then it got to the very end. And the final Jeopardy question was lives that matter. And, 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 and then you see how like, even though like culturally, there's so much common ground and so many things that, you know, are shared experiences. Uh, the narrative that you use to describe them is so radically different yeah. and actually not coming from our, you know, us, but being essentially imposed on us. And I just, I found the whole skit to be brilliant, um, in a way that, uh, that you know, was really profound. Yeah. All right. Thanks everyone for listening and have a great week. We'll be back with another podcast on Thursday. Take care. Take care. Thanks. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org.